everyone. Welcome back to the Cycling Tips Nerd Alert podcast. It's the week of October 18th, 2021. I'm your host, James Huang. We're back in the studio with another group show, and we have our full crew this time around. Sitting to my right here at the Boulder Groupetto is pro mechanic Zach Edwards. Hi, Zach. Hello. Further to my right is back for a brief visit to Boulder, Cycling Tips Editor-in-Chief, Kaylee Fretz. Hey, Kaylee. I'm ready for my hammer segment. Mm. And... For today, we'd like to extend a very, very special welcome to tech editor Dave Roman Sydney because it is Dave's birthday today. Happy birthday, Dave. Thanks, guys. I hope you get a giant pile of tools today. Thank you. I'm sitting on giant. your left. You, today well, is Dave's birthday. Sort of right in front of me, He's kind 33 of. years old today. Let's wish him a happy greeting. And this is what we say. A happy, happy birthday. We wish you, Dave, dear. With love and joy and happiness all through the year. Wow. That's very good. Huh. You just got serenaded by the Body Family birthday song, My Mother's Family. It's a it's a high honor, Dave. I hope you understand. <laughs> I appreciate it, Dave. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, we did also just determine that I am significantly older than everyone else on this podcast right now. We're not going to get into that. Sorry, James. No. Yeah. Well, it's Does okay. that mean you're older, so you get to be grumpier when it comes to bikes? I don't know. I feel like I'm, I've been grumpy for a very long time. <laughs> He's at least three generations of Jurace older than the rest of us. <laughs> Four, four almost, four. I think. Yeah. <laughs> Dear God. Anyway, for today's show, we are tackling a topic that we've actually been batting around internally for a few months now, and a general subject that Dave actually touched on in his recent article on cycling tips. So we're going to be talking today about our personal wish lists for bikes and the bike industry, what we'd like to see, what we wish would go away, what we would like to change are any of these wishes realistic? Or do we actually have any influence whatsoever on what the industry or the bike market is going to look like in the future? I, we're not going to pretend like we have any magical levers here, but we do have a lot of opinions. It turns out we're not <laughs> afraid to share them. I would say that we have a fair amount of influence based on the angry emails that I usually get following things like this. If we had, if we were irrelevant, I probably would not get those emails. Oh, well, I'm glad you get those emails <laughs> instead of me. It makes me feel better. It makes me feel much better. Uh, Dave, I feel like you should go first since you sort of kicked off the timing on this whole thing. What is at the top of your list? Uh, top of my list is, uh, mainly things that surround sustainability. So, uh, you know, we're seeing a lot of brands committing to more sustainable packaging, which is great to see, you know, less plastics, more recyclable cardboards and, you know, simpler packaging. Uh, Shimano, for example, recently have announced that they're moving towards paper-based packaging uh with without ink so kind of boring branded you know lacking branding but better for the environment it's all good stuff but uh i think that's kind of just on the surface and the industry seems to be ignoring the bigger picture which is things like uh the ability to reuse and repair and uh recycle the actual products and uh also backwards compatibility so they're all huge topics but a great example is you know new, new shimano 12 speed uh, doesn't work with 11-speed components. So in theory, you should be able to use the shifter to shift any number of gears, but Shimano won't be offering the firmware uh, to make that happen. So yeah, basically in 10 years' time, when once Shimano has well and truly stopped producing 11-speed DI2 components, then those bikes that have such components on them are going to be very difficult to keep running. Can someone hack it? I don't know. You'd imagine that it would be hackable, but no one has done any sort of DI2 hacks to date that I know of. I mean, when the first Altegra DI2 came out, and then they came out with 11-speed, 
uh, Durace and stuff. Those two group sets, 10-speed Altegra and 11-speed uh, Durace, use the same E-tube wiring. So the new 11 to 12 doesn't use the same E-tube, but these use the same E-tube, and they Shimano made a firmware update that made it so you could not make those two things work together. Right, so, And, and, and that's even like the same things. You could plug them in, literally. These you can't plug in. And just to be clear, this is not something that's limited to Shimano because, for example, when, when SRAM went from ETAP to Axis, even though uh, all those parts should presumably work together and SRAM had actually uh, actually confirmed that it, it would have been possible for those parts to talk to each other, they intentionally made it so that they weren't able to, so that you basically had to use all the new stuff. I mean, I feel like this isn't anything. Like every mechanical group set, you come out with a new generation of whether it's Durace or Red or whatever, like... 11-speed Durace wasn't, shifters weren't compatible with 10-speed Durace derailers. Yeah, and and I think, yeah, that's that's absolutely, you know, the same issue. But I, I think when we're talking about an electronic shifter, I mean, it's it's literally just buttons, right? It's definitely more just like throw it throw it in the bin. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's like there's there's less reason you can't use an electronic shifter to shift more gears because it, it is just buttons. Um, yeah, so. Well, and in the case of the Shimano, they have already proven they've already shown us that it is possible considering that the 11 they already the made ten, it so that the, the 11 tt speed, stuff, TT stuff yeah. works with the 12 speed derailers and everything and they have a firmware update for that and an adapter box so you can plug in the old tt controls with the new derailers and everything sidebar on the tt stuff with the 12 speed i don't we've not really talked about the 12 speed stuff on here anyway any very much but of all of the stuff to not be wireless the tt stuff still being wired seems super dumb <laughs> <laughs> Are we just raging on capitalism right now? Yeah. Are we raging? Uh, we may be raging. Well, yeah, we may be raging on capitalism a little bit. Because, I mean, I've, you know, if I well, own a bicycle component manufacturer and I want people to buy my things, I probably also will not make things backward compatible. Correct. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Correct. And that's, yeah. and that's yeah. you know, that's fine. And, and it's sort of, you know, it's not new for the industry, but I think given so many in the industry are now talking about sustainability and, you know, they're, they're, they're making a, a public effort to, you know, talk about how they're reducing their waste and all this and their, you know, their packaging is, is trying to promote them as being more green. I think, I think until they take steps to improve on things like backwards compatibility, then the rest is kind of just lip service. Yeah. Yeah. Prove to us it's not just greenwashing. Yeah. All right. I think we've we've talked about that one between this episode and prior episodes where we've complained about this. I think we've probably yes. beat yeah. that dead horse quite well. Definitely. At this point. Uh, all right, I'll go. I'll go next. Big horse. It, it, is, it is a big horse. It is a big horse. Um, so first up on my wish list is there's clearly something wrong with testing as far as how bike companies are determining whether or not something is sufficiently designed or safe or that sort of thing because. As uh, I guess Zach and I in particular talked on the podcast uh, last week, we have, we've had so, so many fork recalls and all of these forks, supposedly the designers and engineers and brands behind them have said, you know, they're safe designs. They're, there's nothing wrong with how they've been designed and engineered. They've passed internal tests and everything, but something is clearly wrong with the testing if it is not accounting for some ways in which these things are actually used in the real world. So I would like to see these tests expanded so that it actually reflects how people are misusing this stuff potentially in the real world so that the stuff still works. I went for a bicycle ride with 
uh, one of our colleagues over at Vela News today, and many jokes were made about the integrity of our steer tubes. And we were like, ha ha, LOL. And then at the same time, you're like, hmm. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Um, is this something I really want to be joking no, about? No, like, I don't really. It's this not is, confidence this inspired. A, yeah, this would be a very bad thing if it were to happen. And it, frankly, the fact that we are joking about it and even talking about it is a little bit absurd at this point in time. You know, like I think able to be joked about it happens fiber. too many times. Yeah, but we're pretty good at carbon fiber at this point in general. Why are we why are we dealing with this other than the insipid need to hide cables from air? So to, to further James point, uh, you know, all these manufacturers have to test to ISO standards, which allows them to you know, legally sell the frames. And uh, every ISO test I've seen sort of separates the fork and frame in the testing. So the, the frame is tested with like a steel tube or a steel bar going through the head tube where, to replicate a fork. Uh, and then the frame's tested, and then the fork is kind of clamped in by the steerer tube and then tested separately for impact testing and fatigue testing. And I think it's fundamentally... Very real world. Yeah, I think fundamentally they need to put the two together with the headset that it's going to be installed and sold with and then do testing around that, right? I think that would probably surface a lot of issues. Yeah, I mean, you don't usually ride ride your bike without the fork on it very often. Speak for yourself. No, no. <laughs> Seems like the two go together pretty well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so I think I think James has a, a serious point here, which is you know fundamentally the tests are are flawed clearly because S- something is wrong with some aspects of testing. But here. surely you'd think some of these manufacturers test the two things together. Mm-hmm. If you would really well, hope yeah, so, absolutely. And like you know, for the exa- for example, I know Trek for for a matter of fact, uh, they they spend a lot of money. They have you know dedicated um, test teams that spend months and months testing prototypes in the out in the wild and you know across all sizes and across all models uh and they do that to to prevent and reduce their warranty rates and to find issues before things go into production and i'm sure other brand specialized would have the same thing going on um and yet we're still coming across these things Ooh, yeah bad zach i feel like you should take the next one because i i've i've got to imagine you've got a few brewing I mean, right now I guess there's a lot, but like I didn't come prepared with a list of things that I wish, but like... Think about the bikes I mean, that you've worked on lately. Think about the bikes that you've worked on today, perhaps. I mean, they're, yeah. I, well, to just, I mean, this isn't really something to complain. I mean, yeah, it is. I worked, <laughs> on, worked on a mountain bike. It was replacing the brake pads. You could not replace the rear brake pads on this mountain bike without taking the caliper off the frame because the brake pad, the pin that holds the pads in place was covered by the seat stay. What? Yes. Shall we name and shame? We don't have to. <laughs> but like, this isn't just, it's not here anymore. Not so you can like, it got picked up. <laughs> and we happen to know that the guy that owns it listens to this podcast. Yeah, but it's just like <laughs> silly stuff like that happens all the time. Yeah. And you're just like, how did you not think about this before the mold went into production and you've made frames? Like, I, surely I they, what? I know how that happened. Well, yeah. Well, because someone had a CAD model of the caliper, and according to the CAD model, it fit just fine the way that the back end of that bike was designed. Yeah, but you can't take without the taking pads into out. account having to service it or anything, or like access bolts or yeah. access arm. Yeah, we should. If we, we don't necessarily have to name and shame, but it is a Colorado company. Hmm. We'll say that. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's yeah. Little things like that happen all the time, which are not problems but are annoying. 
Um, like another thing, like really silly thing that could be easily fixed by companies that have three axles. The front uses a six mil wrench. The rear uses a five mil. Why do I need two different wrenches to take off one set of wheels? Yeah. <laughs> is that, is that, do you only see that on custom bikes though? No, no, no not at all production ones all the time. I frankly think pretty much all three axles should have a handle on them. But even if they don't, it should be the same size front yeah, and back. It should be like, that's just really, really stupid. This the same uh, fellow colleague at Vela News today was telling me about how many times he's, you know, gotten a flat and then <laughs> pulled all the stuff out and he's got a tube and he's got a CO2 and he's good to go. And, and then he realized he doesn't have a six mil because he only has a five mil or something to get his damn wheel off. Just why can't you just have a little tab on that? I don't know. It's weird. I mean, I don't, I don't know why, why we're not naming this You just flick and then the, a wheel would fall out. <laughs> That's weird. Can, can we just say it's Ben Delaney? He's, yeah. I mean, he's friends with it's us. Ben Delaney. <laughs> but you think, so, to counter Ben, you'd think after this happened once, maybe even twice, you would just carry a multi-tool that you, had you, both the five you, and you, the you're six You're talking about it. someone who has, who has gone out on multiple rides with his DI2 battery dying. Yeah, I mean, that happens to people all the time. But, and the real, but the reality is, this is my thing. If you are a bike brand... You need to be designing for Ben, not for not ben, YouTube. The Ben, the Ben in general. The, yeah, just Bens. <laughs> the Bens in general. There's there's a lot of Bens out there. Like I'm a minor Ben. I'm like a Ben light, right? Most of us don't pay that close attention to the stuff that we're riding all the time. You know, it's the same the same argument I have against waxing is like I just cannot be bothered to to pay that much attention to it. Waxing your chain. Other things, to, yeah, waxing my chain. To specify. <laughs> yes. <laughs> There's a lot of us out there that just like riding. And, you know, I like tinkering. I like equipment. But I don't like spending inordinate amount of time making sure that all my stuff is completely dialed all the time. I, I, just don't, get any, I don't get any joy out of that. There's no joy. And there's a lot of us out there. Ben's and Ben-adjacent people. Right. Essentially, bikes shouldn't be designed for people like me or Dave. Or Zach, yeah. who really, like all of us know how to deal with all of these issues up and down. We should be designing for people who either have... Idiots like me. <laughs> fairly minimal knowledge or no knowledge of how to deal with any of this stuff. Yeah, exactly. And, and that, that's the issue I have. Is, and and I, I kid, right? I've been working in the bike industry for 20 years. But I, it's, it's, like, it's a years. philosophy thing. You're yeah. just talking about how old you were. Yeah. <laughs> What's that? We were just talking about how old you are. You've not been working in the industry for 20 years. I started working at bike shops when I was 13 years old. I, exactly 20 years, actually. Okay. Okay. Um, okay. How about that? Yeah. No, but even I'm on the, on the, on the knowledgeable end of the spectrum, I would, I would damn hope, right? Bikes are a very, uh, they can be a very daunting thing if you're not coming into it with all the knowledge that we have. And if you are a, an engineer, you should be keeping that in mind. Like, Anybody who's gotten into a new hobby anytime recently knows how daunting all the things can be, right? I recently have taken up fly fishing because I have, I don't know, nothing better to do with a small child. And there, I went into a, a, a fishing shop in Durango and they just start speaking fishing at me. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I was literally, I just turned, I was like, Dude, you, I am an idiot. Like you need to, you need to basically Just assume tell me what that to I know absolutely nothing. I am so bad at this that I have routinely, routinely lost flies because I just tied them wrong and they just fall off of my, <laughs> my line. This is how bad I am. 
cycling has exactly the same thing. I feel like I'm going in a bit of a rant here, but there's a ton of people out there that are not, they just don't know those things. It's no fault of their own. They're just new or they just don't care. Well, here, I mean, and the bike world needs to pay attention. We've talked about this before. And like the bike industry as a whole is pretty much, is very much focused on like marginal gains, saving three Watts here, saving three Watts there with whatever. But at the end of the day, the whole, the bike industry side of things on, at least on the bike company and manufacturing should be like, how do we make this a better end user experience? And like, whether that's user friendliness or being able to just hop on the bike and just head out the door and ride. But there's all these like new innovations that make this much more difficult. Like whether it's electronic or like your tubeless, like, I mean, I don't know how many people are like, Oh, I went out to ride and my tire in my garage had a pool of sealant at the bottom of it. It held air fine for the last three months. And now all of a sudden today I go out to ride and there's a pool of sealant on the floor. What did I do wrong? And I'm like, nothing really probably it's like it's just how it is sometimes and yeah like the end of the day it should be how do we make this basically idiot proof i I will say that um two of the examples you just gave there electronic shifting and tubeless uh intended for to achieve exactly what you're saying you know they're they're intended to be better and more approachable uh for new entry riders right like easier shifting no adjustment tubeless is meant to be self-sealing but yeah it has issues but like right? let's say you have electronic shifting your bike sits in the garage all winter because you're a recreational rider you want to go ride it's a nice day in march and you just hop on and the battery's dead like yes that's your fault because you've not charged the battery but if it was mechanical shifting you could go ride it might not shift great you might need to turn the barrel adjuster a little bit but you can ride you can shift and do all of this and i'm not saying like electronic shifting is great i'm not here saying that like that shouldn't be a thing but i think there are or and, things that we could yeah. do to a and lot of it comes from the education side yeah and it's the same for tubeless right is you know giant equips every one of their performance or decent price bikes with tubeless straight off the shop floor and they truly believe it's the best thing for you know for for all all types of cyclists but the reality is is in your example you know if the if the rider jumps on after a, a long winter their battery's dead and their tubeless sealants also dried out and now they've got two issues with their bike Yeah, these are things that like you and I know how to deal with and understand like, oh, my bike's been sitting, this is going to happen. Most people don't know that. And then they go ride and they get frustrated because their bike, they can't air their tire up because their sealant clogged their valve or their batteries are dead and like whatever. And they get frustrated and then they don't ride. And at the end of the day, them not riding is not a positive thing. I would like to give some kudos. Kudos are due to SRAM. Because one of the few like sort of major instances I can think of of a company actually thinking about user experience is with ETAP. I have had to explain how to shift bikes to many people. I recently loaned a bike that had ETAP on it to a friend and she was relatively familiar with like mechanical Shimano because that was her, her last road bike years ago. That's what that had. And she kind of understood that it took me 30 seconds to explain the ETAP because it just makes sense. Because if you were going to design it from the ground up, that's the way it should work. And, you know, the big button and the small button shouldn't be doing opposite things on either side of the handlebars like they do with Shimano and what like they did for very for a very long time with most, you know, Campagnolo, same thing because they had to do it that way with a mechanical system, but they didn't really rethink it for their electronic systems. Now Shimano will come back and say, well, you can reprogram those buttons. That's that's a step further than most people are going to take, let's be honest. Right. I, I mean, my any DI2 bike that that I've had, I've always reprogrammed them to mimic ETAP like that. 
which just makes more sense to me, but why doesn't it just come like that? Right. I mean, so, their argument too is though, like if you're a rider that's coming from a mechanical group set and you go to that, the buttons are in the same place as they were on the mechanical bike. Yeah, but like it took, it takes two seconds to learn how to learn E-Tap because yeah. it just makes sense. It's paddles, right? Yeah, it's like it's every easy. car that has paddle shifters. Right. This side's easier, that side's harder. That's it. Yeah. yeah. Easy, hard. More hard, more easy if you hit both at the same time. So anyway, kudos, kudos where kudos are due. You know, like I really appreciated SRAM thinking about the user experience when they launched that stuff, but it is a relatively it's a relatively rare thing, I think, in the industry for for the end user and the end user experience to truly be considered. And it's something that major bike brands should probably spend some more time on. Question for James, the the replicating ETAP with Shimano DI2. So do you have it so you push both left and right for the front shifting? No, that unfortunately is not possible. So what no, I, I do, so. no. So, I, but but I do have all the buttons on one side going to harder gears, and all the buttons on the other side going to oh, easier okay. gears. Gotcha. So it is still one you know, one pair of buttons to control the rear derailleur, and one pair of buttons for the front derailleur. Um, so it's not quite ETAP esque, but that's as close as you can get with Di two. I like that. It works quite well, actually. It should come that way. And, and honestly, it's basically how you have it. If you have the sprint shifters or the climbing buttons, it's 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 how they are. Yeah. So I just did the same thing with my main levers. Works better that way. Was that my thing that turned into my rant there? I mean, I started talking about like end user experience. It can yeah. be all of our rants. These aren't like, even <laughs> meant to be rants. It's meant to be a positive, wishful thing. You know, yeah. it's happy. Have you met happy. us, Dave? No, no. <laughs> I don't think you've met us. All right, well, uh, let, let's maybe I'll try and swing things a little bit more into a positive direction here. Sort of. I'm, I'm sure it'll end up, be, end up being random. I gave SRAM kudos. That's you positive. Did. You did. Yeah. yeah. Um, I would like to see, certainly on the road riding side of things, I would love to see companies spending a lot more money and efforts in advocacy work instead of dumping a bunch of stuff into continuing to support racing. Um, I have talked to multiple companies about this sort of thing before. And kind of gotten a handle on what they spend relatively on advocacy work versus racing sponsorship and that sort of thing. Um, so I wish I could remember which companies were which in terms of how much they relatively spend uh, on advocacy work versus versus sponsorship stuff. And um, But I do know that it ranged from like one to one to roughly like 10 to one uh, as far as spending 10 times as much on racing uh, support and that sort of thing versus advocacy work, which... Uh, I feel like is is a little bit troubling because I know we've talked about this before multiple times in the past, especially on the roadside. Um, we are constantly hearing, at least on our side anyway, we always hear from companies about how they are talking about wanting to grow the pie, bring more people into the sport, that sort of thing. And that sort of has happened now over the last year and a half, just certainly by no efforts of the bike industry. It's just, you know, I guess you can sort of thank COVID, I guess. Um, but... I guess the reason you know, we were talking about marginal gains and that sort of thing just a minute ago and how that's always kind of silly, but I feel like the reason why we are in this situation where we are always saddled with these kind of annoying marginal gains with all these compromises in terms of other stuff is because road bikes are about as good as they are going to be, I think, for the most part, or at least they've, the, the performance of them has certainly plateaued, I guess, over the last nonsense. 10 we years or so. Count another three and a half watts or third of a watt. Minimum. But in, in, in the process of doing all that, I mean, the, I said earlier, we were having a, a, a Slack conversation uh, just between staff. Not, uh, I guess it was last night, I think. And my wife is on a bike that's 
I think it's seven years old or so. It's uh, an older Swift Carbon Ultravox T1, I think it is, with mechanical Altegra 11 speed, head Ardennes rims, 28 mil tires, rim brakes. It's really light. She likes it, rides well, good gearing, good, you know, reasonable tire clearance, all that stuff. And that bike is seven, seven or eight years old at this point. And I could put her on a bike that's brand new. And sure, I mean, she would prefer electronic shifting because anytime she's tried it, she does like it. But aside from that, that bike is really not that different from what you can get now. You cannot say that same thing about mountain bikes because that technology is still continuing to evolve at insane pace. And the bikes that are available now legitimately are tangibly better than what they were back then. But now we have all these situations where we are doing things like making bikes just a little bit more arrow or like kind of hiding these lines. And like we're, we're, we're reaching for all this just ridiculous crap to try to make these bikes somewhat better so that people are buying more bikes. When instead, I would love to see a lot more work put into trying to figure out how to make it so that people can go ride these bikes without getting killed. I mean, especially right now, like every company is still doing massive marketing pushes for new product launches and everything. And there's nothing to sell. Like there's no product inventory. Like why do you need to do this marketing push? Use that money for something better. Like whatever you're trying to sell is going to sell out regardless. As a media entity that sells ads, I disagree with you, Zach. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I like, it's frustrating though. Like let's whatever Shimano or SRAM or whoever comes out with a new product and someone's in the next day is like, Hey, I want this. And then I look at the dealer site and it says July, 2022 is the availability. And it's like, great. Why did we make this big marketing push to get these customers excited about this product? That's not going to be available. The timing thing could be better. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's, it's pretty common in, in mark in the marketing world to do such a thing where it's just, it's continuous uh, reminders and, and relevance. So, you know, even if you don't have a product to sell, brands will still invest oh, yeah. money no, in, I, in having their brand seen to, to keep totally. that relevance for, when you're ready to purchase next time. But that, that's the nature of trying to sell stuff. But all that also does, other industries are different, but we have bike shops. Yeah. So when you come out with a new bike product, all it does is devalue the ones that the bike shops 100%. already have on the floor. Yeah. So it's not really helping anyone. No. Um, so I, I fully can appreciate that advocacy work is the sort of thing that is much, much harder it is much more, it's harder to pull off. It's a lot harder to quantify if you're being successful. It's much more, it, it's much more indirect. Whereas if you have a bike company and you sponsor some pro tour team, you can tell, you can get a lot of marketing return from that thing. If that team does well, if you are able to turn that sponsorship into some more exposure, that sort of thing, you don't get that from advocacy work and it's a much, much longer timeline. Again, it's, it's just a lot more indirect, but that said, that doesn't mean that it's not worthwhile or that we shouldn't be putting more money into it yeah and i i would i would extend what you're saying james and say it's not just road cycling right like this boom in e-bikes and e-mtvs like not enough brands are putting the the profits back into trails and uh trail advocacy for e-bikes right like there's there are a few brands doing it but not nearly enough um sure you know it's it's all categories of cycling you could argue Right. But I, I guess the reason why I, I focus on road for that is because if companies aren't putting enough um, enough money into advocacy work for mountain bikes, then it, it's it's super annoying that you don't have enough or very good places to ride mountain bikes. But if you don't have safe places to ride a road bike, people mm. actually get killed. Yeah. You don't really hear that a whole lot. Like, oh, like I had to ride this crappy trail and I died. <laughs> you don't get that. Just went around a corner and there's a cliff. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> Trail builders forgot to build the bridge. 
So I, w- I would love to see more, more, uh, more effort and money put into advocacy work. Having t- had multiple conversations with people from uh, People for Bikes, which is, I guess, sort of the, I guess I would describe them as the, the, the main advocacy group here in the U.S., and talking to them about some of the budgets that they have and the contributions that they have from industry, that sort of thing, the numbers are pretty woeful as far as what a lot of companies are willing to contribute. And it's just, it's, it's kind of depressing. So, so to take this back to the wish list, would your wish be, so I'm not a genie, I shouldn't ask this, but would your wish be um, to basically have every brand donate to, to an organization like that rather than try to start up their own thing and have, you know, an inefficient management that, that, you know, leads to small change is the answer to have every brand in the industry contributing to one fund. I would love to see some more organization akin to what we have in the auto industry, for example. There are there's a lot of organization there. There's obviously a lot of more a lot more money, um, but they have a lot more pull in terms of government lobbying because they are organized um, and because they do have unified goals that they are willing to to advocate for. Um, we don't necessarily seem to have that sort of level of cooperation in the bike industry, and we can't agree on how a tire fits on a rim. How how the hell are we going to get uh, companies together to try and, you know, lobby Washington for some sort of bill to, to, to make riding more, you know, to make riding safer. It just doesn't seem possible. So I would love to see some more cooperation, more advocacy work done, but I obviously don't have any easy answers for how that could get done, but that doesn't mean that I don't want to see it happen. Who wants to go next? What you got, Kaylee? This relates to an Instagram post thing that I made last weekend, two weekends ago, some of that which is can be summed up as I want more attention and money and investment put into building bikes for the version of me that existed in around 2001 versus the version of me that exists in 2021, which is, uh, you know, a professional with a full-time job who's been in the industry for a very long time. Uh, in 2001, I was a 13-year-old or something like that, just getting into mountain bike racing, super, super stoked on bikes, super stoked on racing in particular. Uh, and what I did on Instagram was I, I just sent out a, a little thing saying, tell me what your first race bike was. Not just first bike, but first race bike. Because even though racing is its own thing, I think it's still a pretty powerful pathway into the sport. It makes lifelong cyclists. It makes a lot of lifelong cyclists, right? Yeah, that's you how we all... Like, yeah, like the, the cyclocross boom of the sort of like 2010 to 2015, that made a lot of cyclists, right? Even if they're not racing cross anymore. And I do think it's a powerful thing. And, and one of the key takeaways from all those responses from people was all of those bikes, almost all of those bikes were under $1,500. Most of them were aluminum. A lot of them were used. And I don't see a ton of time and energy and attention put into that part of the market. Now, there are some exceptions. I think Cannondale has done a really good job of this. I think that like the Specialized LA is sort of on the upper end of that price range, but it's a really cool bike because what I'm fundamentally asking for is not like, yes, there are good bikes you can buy for $800 or $1,000. It's like entry level to real bikes. Right, but they're not cool bikes. And you're you're talking about trying to get people into something and get people stoked on something and get people... Turn people into lifelong cyclists. Having a bike be cool is important, like right? Redline Conquest, because we're, t- we we're talking about cross. Like a Redline Conquest was a cool bike. Yeah. Like everyone had one. You'd put like, change some parts out to make it even cooler. But like, yeah, it's like a $400 frame maybe. Yeah. And it was awesome. 
And I get the point. A couple of people responded with basically like, well, whatever bike you bring to a race is a race bike. True. But that only seems to apply at the lower, lower price ranges, yeah. right? How many people are showing up to a Masters 45 plus cross race or crit on some random bike that they cobbled together? Yeah, like, right? like using this Conquest, for example, like you would see that in the lowest category and you would see it in the Cat 1s. Like there'd be different wheels and maybe some different parts, but like the same aluminum frame was raced in all categories and it worked well and like wasn't holding anyone back. And that's like, you're not ever going to see that now. Like you're not going to see some dude racing the one, two race on a CAD four with clapped out one Oh five. Like that's not going to happen anymore. How, how much does some of that fall on us for not talking about bikes like that enough? Because um, we, I don't think that's the case though. Like I, even, yeah. even 10, 15 years ago, like I was broke little bike racer and I loved reading about super cool, high end, awesome bikes. But the difference is the most expensive bike you could buy at the time was maybe five grand. And now like a top of the line tarmac is 15. So I'm right, not, which I, even accounting for inflation yeah, is still uh, way more expensive. James, I don't want to throw the whole industry under the bus here, but I'm going to, which is, Do it. uh, I've been to answer your question. I, I see this comment come up all the time, which is why don't we review my bikes? I've proactively since, since I've been working even from my days at bike radar. So that's like five, six years ago. I was proactively reaching out to brands being like, forget your top end bike. I just want to review your thousand fifteen hundred dollar aluminium bike, the bike that you sell the most of. And the response pretty much always, regardless of who the brand was, was no, we don't really want that one reviewed. We'll sell out regardless. What we want you to review is the high end bike because that's the one that we want people to read about. And often I could push and get some brands to send me these lower end bikes and I would review them. But it's not that easy. These brands aren't reaching out to you and being like, hey, we've got this new alloy bike. Can you review it? Proactively having to go and often we're having to ask six months in advance of them even releasing the thing. You know, we just have to guess that they're going to have one and ask for them to put our name down on it. And so it's not that easy. Uh, and I, I'm saying that because I don't think we're actually to blame in this, in this scenario. I think, I think we're if, partially to blame. I don't we know. Could, we could do more. We could do more, but we can only do as much as the industry allows us to do in this sense, right? Like if they're not willing to give us the bikes to test, then Unless we, know, start we don't them. have the budgets to go buy them. Right. Yeah. But the maybe thing we to should. me that, that's interesting is like, well, I'm just going to use Specialized, for example, because they make nice aluminum mountain and road bikes, like, or frames, I should say. That's one of my wish list things is better specking of bikes. And like, I, not necessarily better specking, but specking of bikes, how people within the industry build their own personal bikes. Like I would much rather have an Ale frame with Durace or Altegra than I would a Tarmac with 105 or Apex like or Rival or whatever. Like the pricing is going to be still less for the alloy bike and you're going to have better parts. You're going to have better wheels. It's going to ride just as well. And like that's I think what would make alloy bikes cool is having alloy bikes in the catalog that are built with cool parts. Like usually they're like cheap, crappy wheels, super crappy, like handlebars and stems and like low end mishmash of parts. And the, I was talking about specialized and the thing there I find interesting is like at tour down under a couple of years ago, they had Sagan do the like pre TDU crits on a Ale. And then like at Leadville this year, they had, um, what's her name? Sarah Sturm on a chisel, but a chisel with all Eagle axis stuff and carbon wheels. Like, 
why is that bike not sold? Well, what's funny is that Cannondale, who has historically kind of flown the flag of really nice aluminum bikes, uh, I guess I would say up until very, very recently anyway, but they had always had a model of their CAD, whatever it was, their 11, 12, whatever generation you want to want to look at. For a long time, they had models of that with Dura-Ace or Red or something like that. And they don't really have that anymore. I think the top end version that they have is Altegra, I think. Maybe. Uh, maybe even 105 now. Yeah. Like the um, Specialized I was looking today and it's 105 is the top end. So the that leads me to wonder is sort of along the same way that a lot of auto, auto um, a lot of auto enthusiasts have a disproportionate preference for for manual transmissions instead of automatics, but in the general public, it, virtually no one wants a manual transmission. It makes me wonder if, as much as we talk about how we would love to see a more affordable frame hung with more, you know, hung with higher end parts on it, is that the sort of thing that unfortunately people in the mainstream just aren't buying? Well, yes and no. I mean, I think that. First of all, I think we can give the general public a little bit a little bit of credit to being able to identify nice parts, right? And I think that you kind of have to look at it in the same way that the bike brands are looking at their super high-end bikes. The same reason why they want Dave to review the high-end bikes and not the low-end ones is because they want that to be some marquee thing that everyone else views as, okay, well, if they can make this amazing bike, the bike I buy for half the price is going to be really good too, right? And I think that you... It's, it's the same thing if you put really nice parts on an aluminum frame. They might not sell a lot of them. I'm not saying they're going to sell a lot of, of Alays with Durace or CAD 12s with Durace or whatever. But I think so much of it's marketing. Like, But that's what I mean. Is it, it, it makes it... What it is is it makes it okay to think that bike is awesome, right? If the only parts that are hanging off these aluminum frames are cheap, then the whole line is viewed as cheap. If Cannadel says, we think that this bike is awesome enough that we're going to put red on it, or we're going to put Durace on it, we're going to put carbon wheels on it, we're going to make, we're going to make a $7,000 version of this, this bike that has a $1,200 frame. I'd buy it tomorrow. <laughs> you, yeah, like, you buy it tomorrow. But, but for everybody else to be like, well, if they think it's cool enough for that, then I feel pretty good about running the same frame, Yeah, like if, but for I think $1,700. Bucks. What would be cool, like say specialized their crit team, Legion, yeah. like if they put Legion on aluminum alloys with the same group that they have like which they used to be on and and the action huggins bourbon yeah. guys used to be on yeah like on they would sell bikes. so many of those and but it would take away from tarmac sales it does right. it cannibalizes carbon sales um but that's a good thing like you're yeah. talking about sustainableism like yeah you crash an aluminum bike and destroy it you can like the aluminum can be melted down and be made yeah. into other things like carbon 100%. you just throw yeah. it in the garbage the hats. the the i had a few comments from this article because Part of Kaylee's point was I actually, you know, one of my points is make rad aluminium bikes again, which is exactly what Kaylee was saying. And a few comments came back with bike designers and, and people that from the industry basically saying that we've tried this, people want carbon, right? Like the consumers. But that's the same argument the as saying people want, want electronic. Mm -hmm. Like saying like, oh, SRAM's only going to make electronic because that's only people, what people are going to buy. Like SRAM, the marketing machine that they are, if they came out with a new 12-speed mechanical group set tomorrow and mar put their marketing spin on it, the, their market, massive marketing machine, put all their influencers on it, they would sell so much fat. I, I like, actually don't agree. <laughs> um, but if they put it like, this is the racing group set, you're yeah. going to crash, this derailleur is lighter, and it's a third of the price to replace when you do crash. Like yeah. People would buy that yeah, if um, all of their influencers and everything were on it. Well, we, we've talked about this sort of thing before about how 
we are kind of heading so, toward a situation where a Campagnolo has is is rapidly going to be come the the. the the component brand that caters to sort of the the purists of the I feel world. Like this has sadly been campy for fifteen. It, it years. has been. It has yeah. been. But 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 also if if that is the situation, then that also provides evidence that as much again as much as we talk about how much we would love to see really nice aluminum bikes and uh, really nice higher end mechanical group sets that sort of thing. I I don't know how much the bike industry can just you know, kind of move their levers up and down and decide like, this is what we say everyone's going to buy. I do wonder if, I, I do wonder how much of it is instead just them looking at what people are actually buying and them just sort of adjusting but their development. Are buying to what what people, are, to, people are buying what they're told to buy. Like yes people no. want to, people want to buy something cool that goes up to the coffee shop and everyone's like, Ooh, ah, that's the latest, greatest thing I saw Ted King writing. Like that's what people want. Yeah. But on, on the flip side of that, Shimano would never have I mean, they haven't yet, but they're going to kill off Altegra Mechanical. They would never do that if the sales su- suggested that that would be the ruin of them, right? No. Right but now, like, they, people aren't you know, buying it because they're being told that they need electronic. And I'm not here to say that like electronics bad and mechanical should be everything, but I just think like people are buying what they're marketed. I think that there needs to be some element of kind of lost leader kind of perspective on stuff like mechanical and aluminum bikes as well. Because, like I said, I think there's a there's a broader there's a broader viewpoint here, which is that when the only quote unquote cool stuff to ride is really expensive, we have a problem going forward. Because, like this little poll thing that I ran on Instagram, I, mean, I had hundreds of responses, hundreds, and every single one of them was a cheap aluminum bike with like a 105 or less, you know. But again, cool bikes, like lots of really cool bikes in there, bikes that, you know, you could be proud and that these owners were proud to talk about. That's there's an element of that that is that is important to the future of the sport and important for pulling pulling people into the sport, because assuming that people don't care if their bike is cool just because they don't have a lot of money, I think is really insulting to people who don't have a lot of money to spend on a bike. Everyone wants a cool bike. And the more we go down this pathway, the fewer cool quote-unquote cool bikes are going to be available for i mean the cheapest cheapest tarmac sl7 is five grand right and it comes with rival access it's a great bike it rides lovely it shifts well but it weighs close to 20 pounds too like a cad 8 with altegra mechanical from five years ago is a better race bike than that Yeah, or like a SRAM Rival Twenty Two group. Yeah, set. exactly. Yeah. Like I, but my gravel bike that's sitting over here has Rival mechanical shifting on it, and I've ridden it for five or so years. I've not changed a cable or how and housing yeah. once. Yeah, and like, as a mechanic, that's terrible. But yeah. it keeps on shifting. To to backtrack a little bit, like I I completely agree with Zach that I would love to see a twelve speed mechanical group set from SRAM, like a you know SRAM Red Twenty Four. Yeah. Um, but it doesn't work with all the latest bikes. That's but the problem. The reality is, is my point was that SRAM already tried all of their marketing power to make red 22 work. Right. And they couldn't. Yeah. They but it was such an outdated group set. Even well, it was and it wasn't. Before right? they came out with first gen ETAP, like yeah. the mechanical stuff was so like Durace, you know, every four years there's a new group set. 
read that stuff was so old at the time. Right. It was. Because even though yeah. even though it, there was Red 22, Red 22 wasn't massively different from Like that stuff came out by in 10. 2013. No, okay. So go go back to the 10 speed. SRAM put all their marketing weight behind them. They sponsored multiple World Tour teams. You know, they had, this is like Lance Armstrong days, right? Lance Armstrong was riding this stuff. And they right. sold, and they so much sold a ton of it. No, no, no. Well, back, the problem back there then, was because it didn't work that well. Way. Yeah, because <laughs> back, back then when, when we were talking about SRAM Red, Two by ten. Yeah, uh, that group set was everywhere. Every single main bike brand that was out there had at least one bike that they had did. a red group set and, on and there. And at least in Australia, they didn't sell. Th- those were the bikes left over that they had to discount. Everyone bought it here, but like it, every yeah, okay. every amateur racer bro was on some sort of SRAM mechanical because it was light, it was serviceable, it did work well for the most part. Yes, it did need more more development work, I think. And, yeah, just and the titanium it, front derailleur, not great. Yeah, Leave it in the big ring. So <laughs> ever shift. So it it wasn't perfect, um, but there were there was so much that was good about it. And then it, looking down further down the lineup, looking at uh, Force and Rival, I had always pegged rival as sort of like the premier privateer race group because it was really really light it was really cheap to replace parts it worked pretty well all that i think that's the key thing is cheap to replace parts like if you were racing whether it's gravel or crits or mountain bike like you were going to crash and inevitably you're going to rip the derailleur off and a rival mechanical derailleur is what like 115 dollars or something if that i think where what's a rival access route derailleur 350 I think might even be might even be more. I have to look now. Yeah, like I don't know the numbers offhand exactly, but like your broke college student bike racer can't afford that. And that's where we all started. So that that yeah, my that's why my, my request is to build rad bikes. They, they don't have to be aluminum. Maybe they are. They probably are. But build rad bikes for me when I was thirteen. But even me today, like me today, like if they came out with this bike today, like I'd be like, oh man, that's cool. It's exciting. And it's cheap. Like, that's awesome. Like, I mean, it's why we both have chisels. Yeah. Like, I have a chisel that's <laughs> an aluminum hardtail. It's sweet. I put nice parts on it, and it's sub-23 pounds and extra large. Like, why do I need the carbon version of that? But yeah, and then I guess part of, a part of my wish list was that, and if you do, if the industry does make these bikes, actually offer them in the quantities to satisfy exactly. demand. Not like, oh, this limited release yeah. of this cool paint job yeah. that is originally a cheap bike, but now it's going to go on eBay for three times the price because there were 50 of them. Yeah, because yeah. I think a while ago, a Specialized offered, I don't know if they're still doing this, they were doing limited edition paint jobs of their um, LA Sprint yeah, frames. There's a whole meme page that makes fun of this and how much overpriced they go for on eBay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. but I, I tried to buy one and I couldn't because they were gone. Yeah, like make more of them. Because they're awesome. They're really like rad. Like the leopard print fork. Right, like who doesn't the want that? The leopard print fork was a little but bit, even just a normal, bit of a deal breaker normal for paint me. jobs. It's oh, still great. a really cool bike. Like you put proper parts on it, and it's an awesome bike. I, I guess, yeah. I guess my point, and I, I feel like I'm sort of belaboring this here, but my point is that even if they're not selling a ton of these things, they it gives the nod to thousands of bike people out there that this stuff is cool. And that's what marketing does, right? That like the marketing effort behind all of these things are convincing riders that this is the next cool thing and that they should buy it. Like if you make cool cheap bikes, every collegiate racer bro will buy it. I mean, that's why the CAD, yeah, the CAD exactly. eight, the CAD ten was completely dominant in the collegiate racing scene. And because it was cool. And how many people do we know and it was that started good. start not even just started racing, but kind of started riding with the collegiate racing scene? And are still riding to this like who, day. How many people here started on a CAD? Like you probably had a CAD. I had a CAD three. I had a, I think I had a 
four. I maybe, started on a five. Four. It was my first road bike. Yeah, I had exactly. mountain bikes before that, but yeah. My oh, yeah first but road like, bike was a five. I started on a Schwinn Traveler. <laughs> oh yeah, that's that doesn't really have count. Mentioned that, have, have, have I mentioned again that I'm old? James started on a horse. Yeah. So like three of <laughs> the four years first road bikes. Own wheels out of wood and, and created the first safety bicycle. <laughs> Yes. Yes, exactly. Giant front wheel, tiny little uh-huh. rear wheel. Yep. Yeah. No fork to break on that one. <laughs> nah, this is, this is, uh, but like we, three of the four of us first road bikes were CADs because they were freaking rad. Right. Yeah. And, and that's, and that's, it's important for getting people into the sport. It's important for, for keeping people in the sport. Again, my, my issue is just that it's not that good bikes don't exist in these price ranges it's that there's so little time and energy and effort put into them mm-hmm. that they're just pretty bland yeah. they're just kind of boring they're boring paint jobs there's no marketing around them there's no there's no interesting like you can tell that the the product manager behind the majority of them i shouldn't say all of them there's some exceptions here the product manager behind them is like got assigned to this bike and built it to to spec and to price range he and, all the boxes. and called it a day yeah. right like there wasn't a whole lot of this wasn't a lot of energy put into it and i want more energy put into these things because it it wouldn't take much it would take like a cool paint job like the the recommendation to dave your recommendation for trek to bring back the klein name yeah oh yeah and build sick aluminum oh, it'd be so awesome it'd be yeah. so good school yeah. klein paint jobs yeah i don't care how many they sell would it be a profitable venture? Probably not I really. Mean, but I like my thought is like even specialized with S works, like S works, keep it as the high end carbon bikes, everything else, like make cool aluminum bikes. Yep. Like if you're not spending 10 plus grand on a carbon road bike, like buy an aluminum road bike because it's just as good. It rides really well. I want to climb. Yeah. I want to climb. would be dope. I want a new climb with climbs. rim brakes that takes a 30. Yeah. That, that the Amanda ALR is kind of Kleinish. Well, yeah. So we we uh, well, I guess on the last weekly episode, I I asked listeners to either post on the a comment on the on the page or on our Slack channel, or whatever. Kind of what it is that they find valuable. What what sort of features that they look for in a bike, either that they already own already or are thinking about buying. And I have lost count of how many people said that what they are ideally looking for is something like an updated Alley Sprint. Or an updated Amanda ALR, something like that. Exactly. With all traditional parts fittings. Yeah. With some more traditional parts fittings without the the fully internal routing up front. Because none of that's like, uh, granted, I do have to keep in mind again that our Velo Club members are kind of more like the, you know, probably on average kind of more at the pointy end of the spear, so to speak. But that said, if you go on the assumption that these are more experienced riders on average, very, very few of them said that they actually wanted this hidden cable routing. They, like almost none of them said they wanted press fit stuff. Like most of them wanted- No one wants press fit. <laughs> most of them wanted <laughs> round tube metal bikes that were pretty light, felt good, rode well with parts that were not proprietary, that so were relatively easy to service. Probably like the bikes that we all ride on a day-to-day basis. Well, yes. and, and the thing to keep in mind is all of these people- they may be interested in these for themselves. They're also, they are the friend that new cyclists go to yeah. when they're bike shopping, right? It's not just us that help people find bikes and buy bikes. Every single one of our listeners out there, Velo Club members, they are the, the, the local expert in cycling to their friends and family, right? And if they know what's cool and what they're stoked on, it, like it, it will have an, have an impact on what people end up buying. And- 
It comes back to this issue though, that it, looking at those same responses that we get from people, a lot of them were talking about bikes that they have had for five, 10 years or so, and they're looking for their next five, 10 year bike. And it kind of comes back to what I was talking about earlier about how road bikes in particular, for the most part, are about as good as they have been for the last five, 10 years with, again, certainly a handful of marginal gains, that sort of thing. They're not really that different. So tire it, clearance is the only tire main, is the biggest only thing. Main sure. thing. Like other than that, a road bike is a road bike is right. a road bike. Right. But coming back to a couple of things that I've talked about already is if you are primarily focused on these marginal gains and trying to sell these kind of small, tiny improvements to people, it just says so much about what is wrong with the state of road riding think, and road I think we should preface, like, those bikes should still exist. Sure, no, for, they have For they, the racing crowd. They absolutely should exist, 100%. But not everyone, like, but it should, the, it the message is everyone needs that it bike. It shouldn't be the default decision. And if it if it is, that just tells me that they are repeatedly catering to the same tiny group of people instead of putting in the hard work and the effort to expand the sports appeal to more people so that these mainstream bikes can be sold in more in bigger volumes can be more profitable yeah um just going back to kaylee's point about the the rad affordable alloy bikes and not meaning to harp on this too much or or create uh, a massive debate but how much of the disappearance of such bikes do we want to blame on disc brakes it's kind of it kind of has pushed the the price point and it's kind of forced in my opinion at least it's forced compromises for the the product managers to make in the spec I mean, for right? sure i would make yeah, them heavier 100 which i that's kind of like yeah like disc brakes i'm pro disc brake yeah but i don't think it should be every bicycle ever now needs disc brakes like i think there's still a market or there should be a market for you want a nice road bike that's light that maybe you live where there aren't hills. You don't need disc brakes. Like recently, we, Kaylee and I were in Belgium. We were riding along talking about like, disc brakes here would be the stupidest thing ever. <laughs> yeah. Like you never, ever, ever touch the brakes. Like why do you? Why does Belgium need disc brakes? They don't. Like it's the same with the bulk of the US, like the entire Midwestern region. Like you don't need that. Yeah, and, you're from Indiana. Yeah. You wouldn't, you would not, if you were still in Indiana, you would not want disc brakes. No, there's no reason. Well, you like, can tell if it's raining by the sound of your brakes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, I don't know. Like, disc brake, I'm not, I'm not here saying like, oh, save the rim brake, blah, blah, blah. But like, yeah. I don't think that it should be now everything has to be disc brakes. Yeah. Therefore, we're raising the barrier to entry for bikes. Prices are going up and now we're not having cool, cheap bikes. And they're heavier. Yeah, significantly low end. It makes those bikes really, really heavy. Yeah, yeah, that low end you go from like an eighteen and a half pound CAD, especially eight years when ago. it's low end and electronic. Like yeah. not to like the new rival axis stuff is great. It shifts really well. The brakes are great, but it's heavy. but it's so heavy. Like it's talking about user experience. Like a heavy bike does not ride well. Like whether weight, I know weight's not everything, but like it should still feel good. When Twenty-two you, pound road bike does not feel no, good. No, like you. you should get out of the saddle and pedal up a climb and be like, "Ooh, this is fun! It feels so fast." But go much lower end. Like Scott, for example, recently released a whole new speeder series of bikes where they've they've hidden the cables on every single model, including the ones with mechanical disc brakes and like t- tawny level gearing. That is not a bike that should exist. It's just not going to work at all. Yeah. Yeah. Like so, no one is asking for that. Yeah. But on the flip side is that I've reviewed quite a lot of, you know, thousand dollar bikes. And back when they had rim brakes, there were some, you know, Trek and Cannondale and a few other brands that put out bikes with brakes that didn't actually work, right? Rim brakes that didn't work. <laughs> um, and a mechanical disc brake will be better, but 
I feel like it's there's there's a happy medium somewhere between these two. This was like briefly touched on like specking of bikes. Like yeah. these cheap bikes, what they do to make them look cooler is they put a more expensive rear derailleur on it. Like love it. That does not help anything. The derailleur, the derailleur is only doing what the shifter tells it to do. Like mm-hmm. if you're going to put more money into something, put a slightly nicer shifter on it, which is a cheaper upgrade, particularly on flat bar bikes, like put a nicer shifter on it and put a lower end derailleur and it's going to work way better or put better tires on it. Yeah. Like, and that, I think so much of that's just an education thing is just like, yeah, it shouldn't be walking to a shop and be like, Oh, this is a XT bike. When you look at the rest of the build kit and it's Dior, right? But, like, but that is proof that bike brands know that they need to make this bike feel cool in some way. And the way that they've decided to do it is if you've got an Altegra real derailleur on an, on a bike that is otherwise entirely 105 yeah, or lower. But that's, that's what I was talking about. Like specking bikes, how industry people build bike, their own personal bikes. Like yeah. I have on my mountain bike, I have an XTR shifter with an SLX rear derailleur because the shifter, Funny, that's exactly what I have right I now. Know, like, because it's going to shift really well. And inevitably, when I smash the derailleur into a rock, it doesn't cost me anything. And and that's why I have that SLX rear derailleur because I did smash my XTR one into a rock and it exactly. broke. Exactly. And like, yeah, it's that kind of stuff always irritates me. Like, put money where it matters, not what it yeah. looks good on the floor. Unfortunately, the brands, the reality is, and and it's it's sad, it saddens me, but the brands often are doing what sells the best. Yeah, but you that's know? I think that needs to be more. That's education. why they're putting crappy disc brakes and making it you know, a 24 pound road bike for a thousand dollars. That's because that customer looks at it and goes, cool, I mean, this breaks. But that's also why companies sell frame sets and why I exist because yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, basically the bulk of the work I do is frame up builds and we build bikes actually cool. Can I, can I pivot to a new, new dream? Yeah. Yes. Please wish, do. wish list. It's it. Well, it's related to what Dave just said. It's all related. It's all related. It, this is what reminded me of it, that it was on my list. So, I recently moved to Durango, Colorado, relatively small town in the southwest of Colorado. There are very good bike shops. Uh, Durango produces a lot of fantastic cyclists. Sepp Kuss is from there. Chris Blevins is from there. Uh, there's piles of them. Nonetheless, when I cruise around town, do you know which e-bikes, what e-bike I see nine times out of ten? Rad power. Correct. Now, the reason I, I draw this sort of line... Is that the like, one without pedals? No, pedals. no, no, no. Okay. It, it's they the ones that you... It, like yeah. The saddle that's like four feet long. <laughs> well, that, that's one that they make, I think. Yeah. So I'll get to that in a second. The reason I mention it, and because, Dave, what you just said, which is, the, the you know, they, they build what sells, right? And what sells right now is disc brakes and whatever else. I get the sense, and granted, this is pretty much entirely anecdotal, but I, again, I live in a town that has dealers for major e-bike brands, major like Trek and Specialized, whatever else. You can get those e-bikes. And yet, nine times out of ten, I see a Rad Power bike. Because Rad Power is probably on Amazon. I don't think they, they are, are actually. They, they are. They're direct to consumer. Every single bike they make is between $1,000 and $2,000. They all have disc brakes and suspension. It doesn't matter at the end of the day that those disc brakes are to us no good. It doesn't matter at the end of the day that the suspension on the front of that bike will seize up after about two months and will never work again. Because what's getting those people across the line is they look at this bike, which is 1500 bucks, has a throttle, has a lot of power, has a big old battery, has, I mean, gets them to where they're trying to get to go without sweating. You can buy three of those 
for one like normal bike brand bike. Exactly. And if you are coming at this without the background knowledge that we have or our listeners have, it looks the same. So why on earth would you pay for the same thing from Trek that is at minimum $2,500, an extra $1,000 to get your suspension and your and your disc brakes? Right. It has a lot of niceties that regular everyday mainstream people don't care and don't appreciate. Like I, I have a neighbor a couple blocks over who they have a, a rad power that she uses to shuttle her kid back and forth to school on. She's not a cyclist. Um, I, 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 she rides a bike, but I wouldn't call her like, you know, she's not into the sport of cycling. She lives in Boulder. She, but she, but she rides her, but she rides a thing all over the place and she rides back and forth, rides her, again, rides her kid back and forth to school, rides with him back and forth to school every day. And that's what she uses. And it's a perfect tool for that. And I haven't talked to her about the bike specifically, but I would guess that if she were presented with options for an e-bike that were like four or $5,000 instead of one or $1,500 or $2,000 at most, then my guess is that maybe they wouldn't have that bike. Yeah. So my, my, my wish list item here is for these sort of traditional bike industry brands to get over themselves and get out of their own way and start building worse e-bikes. <laughs> because seriously, because they're like, oh, no, no, we need to put hydraulic disc brakes on this because it's a big heavy bike and we need to have good brakes. Guess what? Rad Power is selling Tons of these things with perfectly fine mechanical disc brakes. They're not great, but they work. They'll stop you. And it turns out that to get more people on bicycles, because the people that I see on these things are like your neighbor. They are not the spandex crowd, right? They are people trying to get to work. They're people trying to get their kids to school. Those are the people that we need to get on bikes because those are the people that are, that are going to help us in our advocacy efforts and everything else. And just having more people on bikes in town is a really helpful thing. You get those people on bikes with halfway decent $1,500 e-bikes. Yeah, one thing that has always stuck with me, um, I remember a conversation that I had with Anna Mariah Rook, who used to work for us. Um, she used to essentially run Ella. Um, but she grew up in Holland, and she was telling me that uh, she was basically explaining how one of the reasons why the Dutch have so many good cyclists as far as, far as cycling athletes everyone go, rides a bike there is because everyone rides a bike there and you because because you have such a, a larger pool of those, people just riding bikes, in general, bikes you, are so terrible well, but too. you you identify a lot earlier who happens to be good at riding a bike because it's like oh this person happened to beat everyone riding to school every single day like maybe that person could get into bikes but you don't see that here because proportionally speaking, so few Americans in I mean, particular. We just don't have the bikes. infrastructure here. That's the big thing. Right. That is the big thing. But that again, that comes back to what I was talking about earlier with the whole infrastructure thing. It's it's a long term play. It's really hard. It requires a lot of money. It requires a lot of effort. But that's what ultimately will make things easier because ultimately everyone has to ride a bike or if everyone wants to ride a bike, then you just have so many more people who are potentially going to become lifelong cyclists who would be customers. Yeah, I I will say, Kaylee, you um like Trek for example, they do you know they have the Marlin, which is not an e bike, but it's you know it's a very affordable bike that's actually quite decent, and that's their best selling bike in terms of units. But people um, want motors now. Does it have a throttle? It does not have a throttle. But with the e bike side of thing, I kind of I kind of respect brands like holding to their, you know, holding to what they believe is actually the correct level of quality, you know, the, and not putting I mean, their name on a bike that's junk. <laughs> yeah, that's also I, fair. Um, I, I think it's fair, but I think it also, you need to like, apply that toward the correct user. And, and but user. I think like it's okay. Like if, if Rad Power is selling all these bikes, like 
it doesn't matter whether it's Trek selling e-bikes or Rad Power selling e-bikes. Like at the end of the day, it's more people on bikes in general. I'm just saying that the, the traditional bike industry- They're missing out. Yeah. They're missing they're out, but they might kicked. be looking at them being like, that's not a market we want to play in, right? Yeah. Like that's a and liability. Also, like, like if they're going traditional bike shop route, like let's say this $1,200 e-bike, like the bike shop, by the time they actually make it functional and safe that they can send it out the door without- being sued like the margin's so small like it's not worth it i would say i mean i've played around with some of these rad power bikes but like they're not they're not terrifying they're not like a 350 dollars e-bike from alibaba like they're <laughs> <laughs> there's still a bike yeah. there's still a 1200 yeah. like company bicycle. they've not been sued because their bikes are falling apart yeah, left and, right. and they're, they're not just, a house they've just got mechanical happen. disc brakes and they've just got a throttle which turns out people really like because starting from a stop on a heavy bike with groceries on your bike when you're not a particularly good cyclist is difficult and way easier with the throttle like basic stuff what's the um what was the movie shocks pegs you take it off any sweet jumps oh napoleon dynamite yeah that that's that's the user i'm looking for pegs throttle yeah you got shocks pegs (laughs) throttle disc brakes (laughs) that's what i want like i said i'm just i'm just stunned at how badly the brands that we talk about all the time, and maybe they don't want to compete in this space, but that doesn't really make any sense to me because they're getting their asses absolutely handed to them right now. Well, like I said, it's, I mean, it's lot nine of, out mean, of 10 where I live. The argument I've heard from a lot of these companies is that like, like that's fine. They're going to take those sales, but then that bike's going to fall apart and yes. they're going to want something that's nicer. That was what and I was going to we'll say. Convert them <laughs> yeah. into a real cyclist. But, but maybe, maybe that is. That, the, I don't think that'll happen. No, you just buy another thousand yeah. dollar bike, right? But and and the thing is, even if that were the case, why wouldn't you make more of an effort to have that first e bike or whatever be a bike from your brand so that you had something to move them up into? I mean, this is why you have so many luxury car brands moving down market so that they are able to to capture younger first time buyers as at least like first time like luxury car buyers whatever like Audi BMW Mercedes whatever they all have vehicles that start at price points that they wouldn't have even considered up you know multiple years ago but they want to be able to capture that kind of entry level portion of the market so that these customers have somewhere to move up in their brand yeah you have that like brand name that you're kind of with not necessarily for life but like ideally yeah you're like oh I'm I'm now a Trek customer and I also I refuse to believe that the big major traditional bike brands couldn't also build a bike that no, good for like the same price. Rad Power is a base. I would assume that they're just like the startup. Like you could take Trek or Specialized or whoever's big bike company and take their R and D department and focus on making the raddest thousand dollar e bike you possibly can, and it would be awesome. Yeah, there Do there it. are brands out there like Polygon. I know have invested in designing their own motor system because obviously, like the likes of Shimano and Bosch aren't catering to this market at this time. Um, so, you know, they've gone and, and created their own. Um, and I, I believe they're selling that to other brands that they manufacture for. But there are these real challenges in the market where, you know, these the likes of Trek and Specialized, they, they have partnerships with the likes of Bosch and Bros and, and these things. And they'd really, they'd have to leave that partnership or they'd have to go on their own or, or pick something else that's not as well proven or potentially goes back to the fact that it could potentially be a liability, right? Like e-bike battery fires are a real thing. Um, you know, in the UK, the, I believe the fire, uh, the fire authority is now warning people about, you know, how to safely store their e-bikes in homes <laughs> because they've had a huge increase of fires. Um, I mean, so yeah, there's, there's issues here and I, I don't think it's as simple as we say. 
circle back to your sustainability and parts being mm. backwards compatible and stuff. You have a cheap e-bike five years from now, you have an issue with it. Yep. There's no finding any parts nope. for that. Well, un- unless, unless that company, or like if it has a Bosch, there's an actual company that you can go to and get parts. Well, I'm, I'm not that much more confident that Bosch is going to have a five-year-old e-bike. Well, well yeah. that's the thing. Like, Bosch aren't that, making them that, serviceable. <laughs> yeah, but but that's also that's also operating on the assumption that Rad Power or a company like that is going to have a development cycle that's similar to the traditional bike market in that they have something new or upgraded every few years. What if they we just were talking ha- about that for cars? Like, you have to come out. Like, you don't have to, but the mar- the trend is you come out with a new thing to keep people excited, so they buy a new one. Well, no, but the thing with Rad Power, I guess the way I see it right now is they are in a position right now where they are nowhere near market saturation. So they are still at a point where they their goal to me seems like to just get more people to buy a Rad Power for the first time. They are still so much in that growth phase at the moment right. that they don't have to worry about that. And there, and there are so many people, at least certainly in this country, who don't have e-bikes and don't use their bikes for transportation or utility or anything that they they still have such absolutely massive market potential and growth potential, which is why they have so much VC money behind them right now. Yeah, and, it, and it's why it's embarrassing that the the big traditional bike brands apparently Can't haven't recognized that, that there's all these people that they could be getting on bicycles right now. Well, no, we're too, we're too busy trying to figure out how to hide the brake cables in your step. <laughs> yeah, remember the lots. <laughs> anyway, that was my, my wish list is just to sort of, I don't know, pay attention to what they're doing because... Like I said, it's this is entirely anecdotal. I don't have sales figures. I don't. I don't. You know, the sort of deeper strategy behind a lot of these things is neither here nor there to me. What I see is when I'm in downtown and there's a string of bike racks on the sort of like newly closed bits of road because of COVID. There's tons of bikes around. Nine out of ten of those e-bikes is from the same company. And it's not a bike company that existed. I mean, you too. Three like, years ago, look at your like Eurobike. Ronan and Shadi were there, and like nothing but e-bikes were there from companies you've never heard of. I don't know. I'm just I like our you know little cadre of traditional bike brands, and I want them to get on it. Yeah, I think, I think that, though, like I kind of agree with Dave. Like, I'm okay if the actual bike companies like stick to just bikes. Or, or more importantly, just stick to bikes that they believe are like you know are a yeah, quality like, product. Le- yeah, you know if they stick to their guns and say we don't want to create a bike that's going to fail in two years, and then you'll blame us for being you know not environmentally. Yeah, and then sensitive. they have to deal with that. But why? But why does why does an entry level price point from a mainstream established bicycle brand for an e bike have to be like three or four thousand dollars instead of? one or two. Why does it have to be that big of a jump? I think it's coming down. Uh, Merida here have, have e-bikes going down to about two and a half grand Aussie. I mean, surely too, the so direct to, compa- grand. Direct to yeah. consumer helps that. Absolutely. Yeah, that's 100%. a huge part of it. Yeah. Um, I think those price points are coming down. I think Giant as well has bikes at around the two and a half grand mark. Um, but yeah, it is it is still much higher than you know the bikes Kaylee's talking about. They're not bad bikes, I'm telling sounds you. Sweet. I kind of want one. They're They're I, I actually perfectly fine. I, I contacted Rad Power several weeks ago to try to bring in a test bike, and I'm sad to report that I have not heard back. Oh. So Shoddy got in touch with them, and they responded. What? Yep. You should chat with Shoddy about this. Their their response was literally, "It looks like you guys mostly talk to a pretty hardcore cycling crowd. Why should we send you a bike?" Because the hardcore bike companies are missing this. I think. Yeah, but this is this this it's is a the good whole point. thing. It's yeah. a whole thing. 
we talk that's to people. Like why you want to review it? Because like, what's yeah? What are they doing differently, and why? Well, it, I guess I guess the reason why I wanted to bring one in is because I wanted to, I guess, present. I, I guess I wanted to see essentially why, or I guess, expose sort of this massive blind spot that tra- that the traditional bike market has and the pr- traditional bike enthusiasts have, just because we are all mostly into bikes that are really nice and pretty expensive and that sort of thing. That doesn't necessarily mean that does, that that's what everything has to be. And it's also easy for us to forget that most people are not us. Yep. That's my wish. Shocks, pegs, throttle, throttle, throttle. Hell yeah. All right. I feel like <laughs> give me, give me that e-bike. I feel like that's a good place to end because I feel like at this point we have spent we well over an hour. We yeah. could go on and on and on, clearly. This is pretty ranty. But, but at this at this point, we have also spent, we hate capitalism. <laughs> we have yeah. spent we've spent over an hour <laughs> mostly complaining about things, and I feel like we need to we need to call it. All right. I feel like we need to call it. I mean, yeah. I mean, we should bikes also are, say bikes that. are great. Like, yeah. All of well, the latest high-end fifteen thousand dollars bikes, we love them. They're sure, so but, rad and but they're I, so fun. But I, but, but I feel like the reason why perfect. we are all so frustrated is because we, at least in our humble opinions, we see areas for improvement in the, in bikes and the bike industry that make sense to us that aren't happening, and that is frustrating. Yeah, for sure. And, and to answer a thread in the new cycling tips forum, we don't hate bikes. It might seem like that at times, but we don't hate bikes. No, we just pick them apart more than the average person. <laughs> yes. Wait, is this an actual thread in the? Oh yeah. Why do the cycling tip staff hate bikes? Is this the th- me I, specifically? No, I think I think Kaylee it's kind of I think it's kind of aimed more at Dave and me. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I, I didn't see know. that. I thought it was funny. You guys hate innovation. Yeah, yeah, we hate innovation exactly. I do hate a very particular bike. The reviews going up this week. Oof. We're, we're not going to talk about that. <laughs> that right looks now. really we'll good. That. We'll leave that for a little surprise. <laughs> yeah. All right, I think, yeah, we're, we're really we're really going to wrap things up for sure. Thanks for listening, as always. Uh, if you liked what you heard here, please. Actually, one of the best things that you can do is tell your buddies about Nerd Alert so that more people listen to the show. Uh, if you're listening to this show on iTunes, it also is very helpful for us to give us a review, uh, even just a rating. That would be helpful as well, so that more people can get exposed to Nerd Alert. That would be wonderful. Uh, and if you haven't already joined our Velo Club membership program, that would be wonderful as well, because all, all those sorts of things make it easier for us to bring this show to you so that we can continue to complain about things. This podcast brought to you by Rad Bikes. <laughs> Rad Power. Rad Power Rad Bikes. Power. <laughs> Rad Power, if you're listening to this pro- podcast, which you're probably not, please write me back. I'd appreciate it. They, so Shoddy met them at Eurobike, and that's... They, Chat with Shotty. I will chat we can with get one. I want to get one in. We need to get one in. I know. I would write, does it go up and down a mountain? I could commute on one. Oh. I'm sure it would. Yeah, you'd get up there. Meg rode hers to Salta one time in flip-flops. Yeah, I want to do that. Only full throttle mode. There you go. <laughs> there you go. All right. That is our show for this week. We will see you next week. Uh, I'm not sure if... Actually, I'm not sure at this point if it's going to be just a regular group show or a deep dive. We'll, we'll figure that out in the next in the next few days. But anyway, we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening. Bye. Yes. Happy birthday, Dave.